we've gone through for the past several months, walking verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, through this wonderful book. It's been a pretty amazing time, has it not? I mean, we've seen some pretty amazing truths about who God is and what He has for us and how we are to live. Uh, And we've seen this, as we've learned, I mean, context is king. And in order to really understand the Scriptures, we need to understand several things. We need to understand the audience to whom it was written, who was writing it, what was going on, the who, what, when, where, why type of questions. And as we've learned these past several weeks, we've, we've jumped into this book and we've seen that Paul was writing to these new believers. Uh, these were not these, these educated saints that we see that, and we sometimes put in our imagination. They were walking around with halos on or almost floating back and forth, these ethereal people. But they were real people like you and I. As a matter of fact, they um, didn't have probably as much education as you have now. And I mean, they didn't, had only heard Paul a handful of times. I mean, three times that he had spoken in the synagogues, many people had responded to the gospel message. A small church had been established. It was multicultural. We learned about that. Um, and then Paul was removed from them because see what happens is, is when Jesus comes into a life, change occurs. It, it always does. It, it's, and that's why uh, you see this change happening where people are becoming, uh, they, they turn away from sin. Um, men become better men of God, husbands, fathers. That's what the intent is. The same with the women. You're seeing becoming better wives and mothers and workers. And, and, and we want to all of our life to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And Paul, um, when Paul had come in and shared the message and the people responded, you know, people don't like change. And when other people came to know faith, to faith in Christ, that meant change. I mean, think about it. How much do you not like change? I mean, we talk about it. Our culture changes all the time. But the reality is, is when our routine is off just slightly, don't you get a little irritated? I mean, when you get up in the morning, something happened, or you woke right out of bed, you didn't have a time to ease into the day or have a cup of coffee, and next thing you know, everything was on top of you, and you were in a bad mood right off. I mean, we don't like change. Now, imagine seismic change like this occurring, which Jesus comes into a life and these lives are really changed. And there's their husbands are embracing Jesus. There are wives that are embracing Jesus, but yet their spouse did not. And when a, a one spouse comes to, know faith, comes to faith in Christ, I mean, there becomes a seismic shift that occurs where the, the order of priorities, the goals of life, how we live, how we order our life is changed. And people, we don't like that. And especially if you're, you're the one who's the unbelieving spouse. You see your spouse come to know Jesus, and everything within you is like, ah, Ah, it means, does that mean I have to change? Wait a minute, the stuff that they don't, they're not doing anymore, does that mean I not have to do it? But I like doing it. And it becomes a challenge to who we are. And so the people responded negatively, and those who didn't want Jesus there ran him out. They said, we want him out of here. We don't want that conviction upon our lives. And Paul was forced to leave not knowing how this, this group of believers fared. So he writes, he, he finally learns from Timothy after he'd been gone for some time that things are going well. So Paul writes this letter back and he gives some words of encouragement. He gives some words of instruction, some words of clarification to them. And we've come to the very end of the letter where he is, he is telling them, you know, Jesus is coming, but this is how you are to conduct yourself until he comes again. This is how you are to order your life, to prepare for his arrival, because he could come at any time. And knowing that, he could come at any time, but yet he also could delay. So you need to be faithful until he comes. You need to be prepared for that. In this, these past several weeks, we've gone through this period known as the Lenten time. It's commemorating on Ash Wednesday. Many people don't realize that Ash Wednesday, actually the ashes come from the palm fronds of the previous uh, Palm Sunday that are ground up and they're marked on the, the, the person's head to indicate that they are consecrated and consecrating themselves during this Lenten period of time, uh, looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ and celebrated by Him coming in to Jerusalem, coming in to provide for our redemption, and it usually ends on Palm Sunday. And we've, we know that many of you are fasting, and, and it's a 40-day fast usually. But Sundays aren't often included in that because they are considered to be many resurrections. So if you're doing 
doing a full food fast, this would be your 40th day, and this is the time that you should stop. Now, some uh, saying, I've been looking forward to this. Some have done food fast. Some have been doing media fast or caffeine or, or sugars or whatever it might be. And this is where traditionally, uh, for those who are doing just 40 days, this is when it ends. Now, some would take it all the way in through Lent and Good Friday, and that's when it would end. And if you feel so convicted, then you should go through that. But that would be 46 days. Uh, and Sundays aren't considered again because there are many resurrections. But we told you to prepare for this, and we should be preparing for this time, getting ready for Jesus' work in our life, looking to his life to see what needed to happen to provide for our redemption. And as we've done that, we, we understand that he's coming again. I mean, we're going to talk about the events this, uh, this entire week, walking through day by day what happened that day. I mean, two-thirds of the Gospels are actually devoted to the very last week of Jesus' life. That's why we're taking time this week to celebrate, to remember, to reflect, to pray, to consecrate ourselves. But we understand that he came, he died, and that he was buried for three days, and then he rose again on the third day. And that he was seen by over 500 different people over a period of 40 days. And at the end of that time, he ascended back into heaven. And it says that he will come again. And Paul is reminding the people of that. But he says, you know, if he tarries, this is how you are to conduct yourself until he comes again. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to, I want to ask you a question. If Jesus were to come back today, would you be ready? Or would you be frantically trying to get ready? Hoping to squeeze in a good deed or some type of faithfulness to show that you're really ready to go. You know, I remember encountering a missionary friend of mine one time, and I asked him, I was so impressed by his life, and I said, how do you conduct your life? How do you order your life? And he said, you know, I try to live my life in such a way that when God walks down my street and sees me, he smiles. I live to bring a smile to the face of God. I thought, what a good picture. Does your life bring a smile to the face of God? And if not, why not? What is it, what area of your life have you refused to let Jesus have access to, to hold on to? See, Paul is, is writing to us as he's getting ready to leave and sign off this letter with some concluding words like, this is how you are to conduct yourselves to bring a smile to the face of God until he comes. And he gives principles. And that's what we're going to look at today. So before we go any further, let's ask for God's blessing on our message time. Our great God, we come before you asking you to speak to us through your word. Lord, we come as your children by faith in your name. Knowing, Lord, how, how often we are prone to disobedience, how often our hearts are so far from you, how often we delight in the pleasures and the things of this world. And Lord, today we ask you to draw us near to yourself, convict us of our sin, lead us in the path of righteousness for your name's sake. But Lord, help us conduct our lives in such a way that brings a smile to your face, but also increases our joy in the knowledge of who you are. Speak to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's jump right into our text. And we have, it's a small section of verses. We're going from verse 23, verse 28. These aren't verses at first glance that are going to really reel you in. These aren't the verses that, you know, that we have a tendency to to write down and memorize, like trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Not like a Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, or a John 3, 16. This isn't one that you've probably memorized and recited to your friends. But this is a passage that I hope to... Uh, to examine under, not of a microscope, but imagine like you're looking at an iPad or your phone and, and you see a photo and you want to see it close up and you use your fingers to draw it and make the picture bigger to draw it closer to you. That's what I want to do to this passage today. I want to put two fingers on this passage and draw it up and expand it so we can see the truth in this passage. And we're going to see that there's a lot here. It's not just an end, an end of a letter, but there is a great theological truth that God has for each one of us and how we are to conduct our lives. So let's start off in verse 23. Paul writes, Now may the God of peace sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Now, Paul is ending this with a benediction, just like we end our service with a benediction, which is a blessing of God. 
And he's saying then it, uh, that he is, he's expressing a desire for God to bless the Thessalonians. And he asked the God of peace to sanctify them completely. We don't use that term sanctify a great deal. Do you ever use the term sanctify? I mean, it means set apart and made holy, consecrated for use. So you don't say to, to the stuff in your house, like, I'm sanctifying this to be used at mealtimes. I'm sanctifying this pot to be consumed for that. We don't use that. We don't use it in that way. It's, it's, we've put it mainly within a religious setting, and it's the idea of being set apart, that God is setting each one of us apart, that he is making us holy. Do you know why he's doing that? Because God is drawing us near to himself, because God is completely pure. God cannot have sin in his sight. And so he has to make us holy. And it's a process of a, which he makes us positionally holy through trusting in Jesus and what he's done to us. And his righteousness is imputed to our account. But then he progressively makes us holy. The scripture says that holiness is not optional to the Christian life. Sometimes we think, I got Jesus, that's all I need. I'll take you know, holiness maybe when I get near death. We do that. But holiness is not optional. As Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. As a matter of fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, Be holy as I am holy. Now, for many of us, if we're quite honest with ourselves, we have the word holiness, we have synonyms for that. And it's the word boredom, and and another word, restrictive. No fun. Right? You hear the word holiness, you're like, man... It's not fun. But that's a wrong understanding of holiness. Holiness is not walking around or floating on a cloud wearing one of a giant toga with a harp. That's not what it's about. Holiness is about being in communion with God where your joy in God grows. And you understand what pleasure really is. See, he's saying that I pray that God would sanctify you completely because he knew that we couldn't go into the presence of God without being made holy. Now, here's the question that I have. How are you made holy? You ever thought of that? How are you made holy? I mean, does that mean, uh, to give you an example, when I went, to, I went to Bible college and I'd gone to a public schools my entire life and I decided that I, God, had, God had called me, I felt God's calling me to go to, to, to uh, a Bible college. And from whatever reason, it was wrong in my 18-year, 19-year-old brain, maybe even 20, I thought that meant that I had to become a bad dresser. <laughs> that in order to be holy, it meant I had to wear black and white all the time. And I realized I got to school and I was like, wait a minute, you can be holy and look cool? I didn't know that. I was looking at it externally. I didn't realize that. And it's holiness is so much deeper than that. It's not about just the externals. It's not about not doing certain practices, although that's part of it. But it's setting ourselves apart, consecrating ourselves for God's usage. But the question is how? Because, see, we can't have the progressive holiness that God requires apart on ourselves. By ourselves, we can't do it. Because you know why? We're all of us are born sinners. Jeremy is born a sinner. Alyssa's born a sinner. Salamani's born a sinner. Tom was definitely born a sinner. <laughs> Each one of us is, without exception. And how our sinful nature shows itself, our, our, we call it original sin. That's the term theologians use to talk about this fallen nature. It's also called the old man or our fleshly desires. And they exhibit themselves in different ways to each one of us, which makes it look normal to us. For example, some of you might struggle with gluttony. You're overeaters. That's how your sinful nature shows itself. Where other people might be like this. They might struggle with alcoholism. There's some people, have you ever asked yourself why a certain person struggles with alcoholism, but yet you may not? It's because that's their dent of disobedience. That's how their original sin exhibits itself. You have your own original sin that it exhibits itself. It might be a desire to steal, to lie, to gossip. It might be some type of sexual immorality. You might have a desire to have affairs or be looking at pornography. It might be lust or it might be homosexuality. or might even, You might even have bestiality, attracted to animals or even attracted to children. And we're like, oh, that's disgusting. All sin is disgusting in the sight of God. We forget that. 
We have some that we have what we call acceptable sins that we ourselves might struggle with. But other people, we don't, we don't we're, like, that's gross. Well, the reality is, is yours is gross. Ours is, all of ours is. Everyone in this room has their sin coming out in a different way. A different way. And by ourselves, that's our old nature, our old desires. And we have to learn to put those to death. And God knows that we can't do that on our own. So he, when you receive Jesus, he gives his spirit to you to help you make you like Jesus. That's what he does. So he gives you his spirit because he knows that you don't have the power by yourself. Because you know why? The scripture says that he who sins is a slave to sin. You can't stop it. Benjamin Franklin, the great thinker, uh, an American, one of the founding fathers, tried to show that you could live a moral life without Jesus. And he had this list of things and ways he was going to keep it. And he realized that he could get through almost everything on the list, but there were certain things he just couldn't stop. You know why? Because the reality is, is all of us can't stop it only because of Jesus can we. Because the scripture says that Jesus came to set the captives free. And when the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. That he cuts the chains to that. He frees us from the penalty of sin by taking our penalty upon himself. He frees us from the power of sin in that we don't have to sin any longer, but yet we still have sin within us. You can resist it, but the reality is, is we won't be filled with the Spirit of God all the time, and we will give in at times to that. But it's when he comes again and we enter into heaven that we will be freed from the very presence of sin completely which is a wonderful thing. So when Paul understood that we couldn't remain blameless until Jesus comes, he knew that. He knew that you would struggle. He, he, would know, he knew that Sherry Norman would struggle or Chris Tope would struggle. He, he knew that. He knew that every single one of us in this room are going to stumble and fall. He knew that. He knew that Jean Paul would struggle. He knew that Herman would struggle. He knew that Franklin would struggle. He knew that each one of us would struggle in certain ways. And so what he did was, is after he ascended into heaven, remember, Jesus said, I have to leave you. Why? Because if I don't, the comforter won't come, which is the Holy Spirit of God. And see, when a person comes to know Jesus, God takes himself and puts it in you to help develop the child of God within you. And so how do we sanctify? How are we sanctified? And how are we to be ready or live until Jesus comes? Well, the first step is this. We are to rely upon the Spirit of God. That's the first point that I want you to write down in your notes. We need to rely on the Spirit of God, that God himself has given you his Holy Spirit. It is not a thing. It is a person. God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three are one. Not three gods. One God revealing himself in three persons. One in essence, different in function. So ontologically, the same, as philosophers would say, but functionally different. Because the Father purposed it, the Son purchased it, and then the Spirit provides it. That's what happens. And so God gives His Spirit to you to help you live the life that He wants you to live. He directs you. It convicts you of sin. It's the alarm system of your soul. It leads you a desire to righteousness, to take in the things of God, to want to do what God wants you to do. That is the Spirit of God working in you. And we need to rely upon the Spirit of God. Now, what does the Spirit of God do? What does the Spirit do when He comes in your life? Well, there are many things, but the first thing that I want us to see is that He brings us peace. He brings us peace. Notice that Paul says He is the God of what? Confusion in the passage. What does he say? He is the God of peace. That he brings peace. When he comes into your life, God brings peace to the soul. It's peace with God. But it's also peace with oneself. And it learns and bleeds out into peace with others when we learn to walk in this newness of life. Now what does that mean to have peace with God and peace within ourselves? What does that mean? See, we think it means absence of hostility, no struggles. That's not what peace means. Peace means holistic, uh, an understanding of who we are and what we find ourselves in Him. It's a whole understanding of life. And it's the understanding of not just absence of hostility or a cease from conflict, but rest in our souls. Many of us need rest. I mean, we know how much we've struggled. And he's saying the God of peace, when God comes into you and His Spirit comes into you, He gives you peace. Secondly, He also gives you power. He gives you power. You know why? Because you can't live this life apart from the Spirit of God. 
You can't. It is impossible. You can't do this on your own. You can only be moral, but you'll never, and you could be moral up to some, to some uh, level, but you'll never be moral to the level that God has because he wants moral perfection that none of us can have on our own. And it's only through God's working within us and appropriating the Son of God's life into our own that we are made, we, can, we have now power to resist sin. We can say no to unrighteousness. See, it's like being at a concert. You've been at a concert, thousands upon thousands of people are there, right? Now, I want you to imagine you are up in front of all those thousands of people, and you, there's no microphone, and you are trying to get all of those people's attention. How many people's attention will you get? Not many. Maybe the front row, if that. Because people are all talking. But now let's put a microphone in front of you. And now that amplification is going all around the entire area, field, wherever it is. Now could you get people's attention? Yeah, why? Because now you have power. See, when we are living this life on our own, trying to do it on our own without the Spirit of God, there's no power. But when we plug into Jesus and God places His Spirit within us, now there's power. Power to say no to sin. Power to live a righteous life. Power to not be chained to our past. Power to be different than the way you were. Power to have freedom. Power to do and be the person that God wants you to now be. He changes you from the inside out. So His Spirit gives us peace. It gives us power to say no to sin and to be grow and to actually be sanctified. And that means saying no to sin. I mean, we say yes to God, but we also have to say no to sin. And we see in the earlier chapters of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 7, that means, and it's God's will for our sanctification to say no to sexual immorality. Because Why? Because it's the essence of who we are. That's why the scripture says, he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Because God has made it to be a one, one thing with a husband and a wife. That's what it's to be. And not out of order. It is to be within the covenant of marriage. To leave and cleave and then live together. That's the order. But our world today has so many different understandings of it. And not doing what God has said within his word to do. This is what God himself has said. We can't look what the world says. We can't look with what our reason says and what people around us are doing because they might have a temporary, I mean, they'll show their best face, but God is going to show in the depth of his being how he desires it to be. Now, it's not going to be easy. It requires us to put to death our sinful nature. But God will give us peace and joy in the midst of it, and he will be glorified through that even when it's hard. So it will give us power. I mean, peace, power. But we see here, in ver- in, back in our passage, he says, He will keep our whole spirit and soul and body, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's not trying to draw out how our, our being or essence here. It's a holistic understanding that God will keep every aspect of our being and preserve us blameless at his coming. He will preserve us. That's what the Spirit of God does. He preserves us. That's the next thing you need to write down within your notes. Let her see. He will preserve us. Now, what does it mean? Look at verse 24. He says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The one who calls here is in the present tense and shows that God doesn't just call us to salvation and leave us on our own. Like here, I want you to take this and sign this salvation policy. Good, we're all good. I'll see you at eternity. That's not what God does. No, God is saying, I am present with you. I am changing you from the inside out. I am the one who will bring this to pass because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. I mean, he will transform you from the inside out. God started a work in you when he placed the Spirit of God within you. It's a deposit of the future life that is to come. That's what God is doing for you. He will preserve us and he will keep us blameless at his coming. Until Jesus comes, we need to rely on his Spirit because we must not think that we have, uh, and when we rely on his Spirit, we must make sure that we are living this Christian life and, and not just think that it's God's doing it and he doesn't need me to be involved in it. So when we say that God is doing it, he's working in you, but yet you are also to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a both and. I mean, God is working in you, but yet you're not just to sit there as a passive agent going, God, do the work. Do the work, God. Do the work, God. 
It's not that way. You see, God not only ordains the end results of things, but he also ordains the means by which they come to faith. Allow me to explain um, through a quote. And C.S. Lewis, uh, the great author, he said this, God, if he so chose, could repair our bodies miraculously without food. You don't, you don't need that, right? God could take care of me. I mean, I hear people say, why do I need to go evangelize? God's going to do what he's going to do anyway. Then why do you eat? That's what he's saying. God can repair your body without food. Or give us food without the aid of farmers. Farmers are going to go, God, you're going to grow it anyway. I don't need to farm. No, he's not only doing the end results, but the means by which they come to account. Or bakers, or butchers, or convert the heathen without missionaries. Instead, he allows soils and weather and animals and the muscles, minds and wills of men to cooperate in the execution of his will. See, this is why prayer is powerful. Because God has given us, as the great mathematician Blaise Pascal said, the dignity of causality. Your prayers can change lives. And God has ordained that. Your prayers are powerful. That's why in James it says that the prayer of a righteous man is faithful, I mean, is effective, is powerful. And Elijah was a man just like us who prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Because God has ordained that. He has given us this power, this tool to pray. The problem is, are we using the tool? Are we praying? Are we tapping in to what God has for us? Which actually leads me to my next point. Because see, here's the great Apostle Paul. Paul, I mean, this is the man who was caught up to the third heaven. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. This is the great man of God who had a vision, and he had Jesus appear to him and speak to him. And what does he say? Does he say, brothers, I pray for you? And he does. But he says, you know, people don't always come up to him and kneel down and say, Paul, pray for me, pray for me. Paul, what does he say? Brothers, pray for us. Here the great apostle Paul is asking for people to pray for him. We understand that he was a man just like you and I. Called of God, yes. But he was a human just like us. And see, in order for us to to be prepared and, and, and be prepared when Jesus comes, we need to enlist prayer support. Enlist prayer support. Look at verse 25. Brothers, pray for us. Paul understood that God was working in them and through them, but he also understood that a great deal of the work was beyond their ability. See, there is something that we can do, and then there's something that only God can do. See, for physical things, we do what we can, but when it comes to spiritual things, we find ourselves lacking. It is up to God to change a heart, but it's up to us to present the information. And then we pray that God would change them. See, prayer is an amazing tool, a powerful tool. It takes us outside of the physical into the spiritual. It casts us entirely upon the person of God, and it takes us into the realm of the unseen. And it's in the unseen world that the seen world is changed. Because, as Ephesians 6, 18 says, we, wrestle, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's, it is, after all, do you know what prayer is? It is an act of rebellion against the world's status quo. That's what it is. See, the world wants to conform you into its thought process, its thinking patterns, how you go about, how you live your life, what you value, what you do, your entertainment, your pra- everything that you do. But see, prayer comes in and blasts that out and to say, I want the life of God to come into this situation. I want you to see what God is doing. And, and, and reorient our minds. And see, prayer helps blast away those molds. And that's why Paul is saying, please, brothers, pray for us. We have to realize, understand how powerful prayer is. When I was in India, uh, there was a woman there that was sharing across the table. I can't remember what state she was from. There were many Americans around the table. And across from her was the, uh, the great Brit, uh, Stuart Briscoe. Now, some of you might know him, some of you may not. He's 85 years old now. He uh, took over a church in, uh, right outside of Milwaukee called Elmbrook Church. And this church was 300 people when he started. When he left 30 years later, the church was 7,000 people. This is an amazing man of God. And yet now he travels. He's 85 years old. He travels three quarters of the year going to all these different countries sharing the gospel. 
mean, his wife is 80 years old, and she's sneaking into countries to share the gospel. 80 and 85. This is amazing. Just amazing testimony. And I was just soaking in their ministry and asking questions. And this woman was sharing her heart, that her heart was just broken over a child who turned their back on the faith and, and left it behind. And he smiled, and she's like, what do I do? And he smiled really big, and he goes, she is defenseless, absolutely defenseless against your prayers. I went, wow, he's got a deeper prayer life than I do. But he understood that prayer is an invasion and rebellion against the world's status quo. And it's asking God to invade our world with his power. To change situations, to change hearts, to change minds. Because the evil one says that he blinds the minds of unbelievers from keeping them from seeing the light and life of Christ. And he does whatever he can to make sin look normal and righteousness look strange. And he wants us to make, to make it look like the, the, the life that God desires is in complete rebellion and antithetical to our own personal pleasures. And, he's, and God is, when we ask for God on a situation, God is removing those blinders and showing himself. Now, prayer such as this requires practice. It requires practice. You can't just pick this up overnight. And there's different ways you can pray. There's different models. There's the ACTS model of prayer. Some of you might have heard it, A-C-T-S. You adore God, you confess your sin before God, you give thanks to God, and then you lay out your requests. And there's another one, there's the five-finger plan, where you give God a thumbs up. Thank you, God, for everything you've done. Then you use your index finger, it's your pointer finger, and you point out all the things that God has done in your life. And then your middle finger, in our culture, this is not a good finger to use. All right, this is one that uh, we, we all know what it refers to, but it also, in some ways, when you have a desire to, to draw that middle finger, it's the idea of confession. I need to confess my sins, the evils that I've done that's wrong. And you're, in our culture, in our culture here, uh, um, many Americans wear their ring finger on their left index finger, or whatever, you're, it means living on their index finger. And we use that to pray for our, our, those, our family and our friends that are closest to us. And then lastly, we pray for our own personal needs. But we need to practice this type of prayer life that God has for us. It's not something that has for us overnight. And then we need to make sure that we are exercising patience as we pray. We, we have a tendency just to be like children. And, and I don't know if you ever did this when you were kids. Maybe not. You guys were all good kids when you were eight, nine years old in your community. But in my, my town, we used to have this fun thing that we would do. We'd see someone's house. We'd get one kid to walk up and ring the doorbell and then run away. You ever done that? Or knock on the door and run? Called it ding-dong ditch is what we called it as kids. Maybe you had a different name for it. I don't know. But see, many of us are like that with God in prayer. We go up, hey, God, I need this. But then we leave. We don't go back and continually come again and again and again. And that's the type of prayer that God wants. Jesus actually talks about this in Luke chapter 11. He says not only just the practice of it, but he wants us to be persevering in it. And he said to them, Which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Let me set the context a little bit. Middle Eastern culture, hospitality is massive. To not have friends, I mean, not have food to offer to one's guests is very shameful. In our culture, we've really lost that. This is what our our Middle Eastern friends can teach us a lot about what hospitality is. And here, though, this guy shows up at like 2 or 3 in the morning going, I have guests that just showed up out of town. And, and, and how do you respond? He says, and he will answer him from within. This is the guy that's in bed. Don't bother me. Let me, let me put this in a, my own little version here. Why are you at my house at 3 in the morning? I'm tired. The door's shut. The dog's asleep. You're going to wake up everybody. Leave now. And I don't want to get out of bed. It's so cozy in here. The floor is cold. I don't want to do it. And that's what this guy is. He's saying, my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Jesus says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, but yet because of his impudence, his gall, his chutzpah, his guts, the fact that he would do that. Imagine, I mean, if you have a need, would you go knocking on your neighbor's door at three in the morning? Would you do that? I mean, I, I, would, be, I would do everything in my power so I didn't have to do that. But here, they just couldn't go off to the grocery store. You know, Jewel's closed. There's not a 24 hours. But he's saying because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. 
Jesus draws it out even in another passage, Luke chapter 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not come, she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect? who cry out to him or cry, cry to him day and night. Will he delay along over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The point is, is that are we, Jesus is saying, faith is seen by how it perseveres. See, that's the next point that you need to write down. We have prayer requires practice, patience, and perseverance. Are you willing to persevere in prayer? Now, again, when we pray, we have to remember it's the, the, the stoplight. Sometimes God says yes, sometimes he says wait, and sometimes he says no. When we ask for something, we go, God didn't, give me, didn't answer my prayer. He answered, he just said no. He answered, he just said no. We always think that when answer means in the positive, not, that's not true. Sometimes it means in the negative. Sometimes God says yes, sometimes he says wait, and sometimes he says no. We have to remember that. We can't just say, oh, God didn't answer my prayer. He answered. Just not in the way you wanted. Not in the way that you wanted. So it requires perseverance. Now let's continue on. God, I mean, God delights in, in, in persevering prayer. It's not a magic formula. But that's not the only way that we stay sharp until he comes. We also need to make sure that we seek fellowship with God's saints. Saints, and that, and what I mean by that is, I'm not talking about the the uh, the Roman Catholic notion of the saints, where we have uh, people that we pray to. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the very people of God. See, when a person becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, God then gives them the name, many names. I mean, you're part of God's family. You're a new creation. You're also considered to be God's saint or God's child. We're all saints. Some of you might think you're sinners, and you might be, but you are simultaneously, if you are a believer in Christ, a sinner and a saint. Because you are not yet completely removed from that presence of sin in your life, but you are considered a saint in the sight of God. Now, I get this from verse 26. Look at verse 26 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now, this is always a passage that I I always love to see preached at youth groups. People get really excited about this passage at youth groups. Uh, Hey, I get to greet somebody with a holy kiss? This is the best youth group ever. I love church. Um, that's not what the passage is referring to. It's the understanding of the Middle, Middle East connotation of uh, acceptance, friendliness, reconciliation, uh, affection. Um, it, it's brotherly love is what's going on. And we see this with, going on within the early church. It was predominantly men with men and women with women. Although early on within church history, it began to shift. You saw men and women, and then you also saw some other some problems that came up with that, as you all expect. I mean, I'm fine if, if some guy wants to give me a holy kiss, but if you give my wife a holy kiss, I might give you a holy fist. Because um, you don't kiss my wife. It's my wife. <laughs> Her kisses are just meant for me and, you know, my two-year-old son or any of my kids. But it's the understanding is this, it's, it's this intimate fellowship. We actually see in church history, by the way, them putting regulations on who could kiss whom. Uh, in the early church. And we see that, that practice uh, transitioning on now where you have a good handshake or a good hug on the side. Uh, but it's the idea here of acceptance, of fellowship, of intimacy. And it means gathering together as God's people to hear the word of God, to celebrate communion and baptisms and, and to encourage one another. And what can we learn from that? Well, first of all, that it should be frequent. Our fellowship with God's saints should be a frequent thing. This isn't a once a month thing. This is to be a a weekly thing. And we say here at, at Village Bible Church, we want you to be here for the worship service. But we also want to see you grow and really grow with some other believers. So we heavily encourage you to begin involved in a small group. Because if you're not here, I mean, it's, it's, we're getting big enough now that it's hard to see and know whenever someone is gone. But in fellowship, in a small group, you have a closer group of believers that is keeping tabs on you, helping you out there to encourage you, pray for you. And I've seen some great things happen in our small groups. I've seen some people going through some very hard health scares or really physical limitations, and their group has come around them and fed them and helped them in their home. And others have just prayed for them and, and encouraged them and are texting them. And it's really good to be a part of that. 
that. And we need that type of fellowship. And that's what Paul's saying. Greet the brothers on our behalf with a kiss. Let them know they are loved and we want to be there with them and we want to fellowship together. So it should be frequent, but that's not all. It also should be familiar. Familiar. And that's why this intimacy there, they, you don't kiss somebody you don't know very well. I hope. Okay? But there's the idea of familiarity, of closeness, of intimacy. And here it's the idea of I'm going to get close to a certain group of people to fellowship with them and share my life as they help push me to be the person God wants me to be. And then nextly, I mean, next, why do we do this? Because it helps us keep the faith. Iron sharpens iron. We've talked about this several times. It, you have a fire in your, if you have a fireplace in your home and you have that log in that fireplace, it's great. But when you take that, that log out and throw it outside, what happens to it? Well, the log cools rather quickly. When you are not in fellowship with God's people, your faith grows cold. And so we need to be here. That's why we need to be together, to be under the Word of God. And we're praying this next Sunday as Easter comes in, we're praying that many, many people might come here to hear the message of who Jesus is. And we want you to invite your family, invite your friends. It's going to be a great time. It's a celebration. This is the biggest Sunday in the entire calendar of the Christian year. I mean, this is, this is it. I mean, Christmas is great, but you don't see the early church celebrating Christmas. Because they equated it with the birthdays of the Caesars. It didn't come on until much further down the line. But early, immediately in church history, church history, people were celebrating Resurrection Sunday. This is our, I mean, our Super Bowl, World Cup, Olympics, everything in one. And this is a time of celebration where we come together. Family is second. Faith is first, especially on this day. So it should be frequent and it helps us keep the faith. Now let's get back to our text. Look at verse 27 with me. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Now why would he do that? Why would he have this letter read? Because he understood that God had worked within these words and that this had become Scripture itself. He knew that God had blessed his writings and put them as Holy Scripture. And he charges his letter to be read. matter of fact, the early church believed it to be Scripture. Without him telling it, they recognized that God's hand was upon it. And he's saying, I want you to read this before the brothers. Why? Because it's the power of the word of God, the power of the scriptures. And he wants, us, wants to connect us to the power of the scriptures. The power of the scriptures. Because you know, the scriptures are powerful. Matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Because see, the Bible, the Bible doesn't let us go off without an indictment. It convicts us of our sin and shows us who we are, but also shows us who God is. And we understand that it's living and active. That's what we can see also that it's God-breathed in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16-17. through All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for preaching, for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be, be equipped, complete, complete, equipped for every good work. Why? Because the Scripture is transformational. We do this because the Scripture is transformational. It transforms lives. The Bible, and people know that. That's why it's the most banned book in the entire world. Governments have tried to shut it out. We understand that it's also the most purchased book in the entire world. It's the most translated book in the entire world because God wants to speak in everybody's language. He's not limited by one language, that he's able to transform an entire culture from the inside out. And we understand it's power, that it works within a person's life. It's also the most stolen book in the world, by the way. People want to understand and enter into that transformational nature of it. But it's also trustworthy. It's trustworthy. It's remarkable to me to see so many countries call for its banning because what does it do? It changes a person from the inside out. It calls us to love God and love our neighbor, to treat others decently, to live a righteous and pure life, to consider others better than ourselves, to deny ourselves and help the most vulnerable among us. It calls men to be better men, husbands and fathers. It calls women to godliness, to be better friends calls us to help our neighbors, to end racial prejudices, abuse, and injustices in society. The Bible is trustworthy when we trust in it. Brother Yoon, this Christian um, figure who has been tortured for, for his faith in pretty awful circumstances, 
Uh, and this man, by the way, didn't have a Bible. He became a Christian at 16 years old. He prayed and begged for one. He asked his parents. They didn't have one. So they said, there's a man in the village we heard that has one. He shows up, and they say that he didn't know if he was a spy or whatever, and he says, you need to pray about it. So to, in order to get a Bible, I can't give you this one. So this man fasts for 100 days, having only a bowl of rice each day. And then he has a vision. And in this vision, he has these men appear to him, bringing him a Bible. And then that, and, and he wakes from the vision, and at the door are two men, and they have a Bible. And then he takes to, he, he couldn't read very well, but he, then he takes in that Bible and begins to memorize it piece by piece. And then God begins to transform him from the inside out as he's memorizing entire books and going into villages, sharing the truth of who Jesus is, and people are being transformed because of it. See, the scriptures are transformational in nature, but he's actually been in the United States. He's traveled to many of the churches. He was even at our own Sugar Grove campus several years ago. But this is what he said after coming to many of the American churches. He said, not only is knowledge of God's word missing, but obedience to that word. There's not much action taking place. You can never really know the scriptures until you're willing to be changed by them. So let me ask you the question, are you willing to be changed by the word of God? When people say that they come to the Bible objectively, it's not true. No one ever does. Why? Because it indicts every one of us as of sin and convicts us of unrighteousness. Not one person can be objective when they approach the Scriptures. But we have to understand that it's transformational and it's trustworthy, which means that we need to be in a place where the Word of God is taught. Word of God is taught. One of the things uh, I admire, the Pastor John MacArthur, he's in Sun Valley, California, and it, the phrase of his ministry is, unleashing God's word one verse at a time. I love that. Because that's what, what it happens. And that's why we here at Village Bible Church, we break down. We want to understand the Bible in its, in its genre, its context, its history, its language, and how to apply it to our lives, understanding what it meant to the original audience and what it means to us in the here and now. But we need to be open to be changed by it. Now, I want us to look at the last verse of 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, verse 28. Paul ends the letter with this. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, Paul often ends his letters with this exact same phrase, and many scholars believe it's just a normal ending, such as sincerely or with love. But there's more that's here. I think Paul is giving the Thessalonians and us a word of hope. It's a word about how we are to live. He knew we would get discouraged, that we would have to deal with disappointments inside and out, that we would go through hard times, we'd have personality conflicts, misunderstandings, and have our constant struggle with sin. He knew that we needed strength. And so he reminds us of where our strength truly lies. And that is in the grace of God. So he concludes this wonderful letter with a word for us, from, with a word for us to trust in God's strength. Trust in God's strength. Now, God's grace gives us strength. God's grace, and when I use the term grace, I mean unmerited favor. You can't earn God's favor. You can never be good enough to earn God's favor. There's not enough you can do. There's not much you can sacrifice your body or, or fast or beat yourself or blow yourself up to get God's favor. That is not what the scripture says. Our faith and our only acceptance becomes entirely in and through Jesus Christ. That is the basis of our acceptance and trusting in not what we do, but what he has done. It is his finished work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead that validated everything that he said and did. And then he gives us then grace, God's favor, unmerited favor in and through him. And when we have that, it gives us an amazing perspective on life. An amazing perspective on life. We're not living under law anymore. We're not living under the, the uh, we're living under the dispensation of grace. God is, it graces God's unmerited favor, and it's a gift that was made available to us through Jesus's crucifixion, death, and resurrection from the dead. And why is that such a big, big deal? Because when we realize that when we have God's favor, and we're not trying to earn it, that it's freeing. We don't have to beat ourselves up, try to pay back God for forgiving us, or go to extreme lengths for God to bless us. We don't have to blow ourselves up, destroy our bodies, or give all of our money to earn God's favor because we already have it through Jesus. God's grace also gives us an amazing promise to live by. Promise to live by. When we have God's grace, we don't have to live in such a way that God is going to pull out the rug from us. I've read a lot within church history and studied many different faiths, and often you see God, the gods that are presented are often capricious, 
You never know how they're going to act in a certain situation. But with God, when he says that you're under grace, then you understand that he's given us a promise that he's not going to change in the middle of it. It's like playing a game with kids. You ever played a, a game where kids have created? In the middle of the game, the kid goes, hey, no, that's, that's not fair. We're changing the rules. No, you can't change the rules in the middle of the game. And I'm constantly telling that to my son. Who's in, he wants to make it so it's in his favor. And we do that. But God won't do that. God won't change the rules in the middle of the game. He has said, it is finished. It is done. It is complete. That's why in Revelation he says, do not add to God's word or take away from it. It is complete in and of itself. Paul even makes it, he even says it this way. He says, yea, if I or an angel in heaven would appear to you and preach a different gospel than the one you have received, let him be anathema, which is a strong Greek word, which means condemned to hell. Do not add or take away. It is complete and finished. God said that, and he's not going to go back on it. It's finished for all time. There's not a part two or a sequel. It's not, there's not a third leg to the journey. It's, it's done. We need God's strength. We need his perspective on life. We need a promise to live by. And lastly, we need protection in time of trouble protection of time and trouble. And I'm going to conclude with this. What does that mean, protection in time of trouble? It's like this. You ever been on a, uh, ever walked on a high wire? Anybody ever walked on a high wire? Or, or one of those logs? You know, I was at a camp where they put you up 30 feet in the air and it's, uh, you have to, you're harnessed up, you got a helmet on and you have to walk on this very seemingly narrow log, much narrower than when I, I originally thought about it. And you got to walk to the other side of it and ring a bell, Right? And I remember walking across that. I mean, you, you, first you cling to the tree, and then you got to let go, and you're worried about your balance. Now, let's imagine for a moment you're, you're 100 feet in the air. You've got no harness and no helmet. Now, how nerve-wracking is that? And that's what law is. See, law offers no, I mean, either you're on it or you're not. That's when you try to live by law. Boom. Law is, is not meant to be lived by. It's to convict us of sin and lead us to the knowledge of Jesus. That's what the scripture says about the Old Testament. And so what grace, though, does is it gives us a net right underneath that wire. And that net can't be moved. That net will always catch you. Because for where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. It will always be there. Because what Jesus did, it's not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon him working in and through you. That's what grace is. It's protection in times of trouble. So we must realize until we comes, we'll continue on. We rely on His Spirit, enlist prayer support, seek the fellowship of God's saints, stay connected to the Scriptures, and trust in God for strength. And when we do, we will be blameless at His coming. There'll be no regret, no accusation, no tears, no wonder. We will enter straight into the very presence of God. There'll be no sense of sorrow or regret because we live for Him and His glory. And then we can say joyfully, Hosanna, come Lord Jesus, which means save now. And we will receive the words we have waited so longingly for. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's a great word. Let's close our time with a word of prayer. Father, you are holy and we by ourselves are not. No one in this room is holy, Lord. You know the intentions of our heart. You know our dreams. You know our aspirations. You know our disappointments. You know our sicknesses, our sufferings, and you definitely know our sins. And yet, even while we were still your enemies, you sent your son to die for us, and that he would choose to die is something beyond our ability to even fathom or understand, that he would take take our sins upon himself, our sufferings, and it's by his stripes we are healed. And to realize, Lord, that we can have that healing, that we can be made spiritually whole, that we're no longer imprisoned to the, uh, and chained to our sins, but you freed us. Lord, we rejoice at that. And, and Lord, to realize that we've not been left as widows and orphans, but that you have brought us unto yourself and that you've given us your spirit and these words to live by. And Lord, may we live in light of this truth. May we go forth changed and empowered to be the people you want us to be, to live the lives you have ordained us to, and desire us to live, that your name might receive glory and we might increase in joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.